Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Earlier in June, BNEF released the 2023 edition of the Electric Vehicle Outlook, or EVO for short. It's one of our flagship publications where we take a detailed look at how electrification, shared mobility, autonomous driving, and other factors are going to impact road transport in the coming decades. The report is written by our extensive team of specialists from around the world. They can look at scenarios for how these trends are going to impact the automotive, energy, infrastructure, and battery materials markets. So we want to know what's changed since 2022 and set it against net zero targets and also talk about which areas of the electric vehicle fleet are succeeding and which might be lagging. In today's episode, I get to speak with BNF's head of advanced transport, Colin McCarricker, and together we go through consumer demand for electric vehicles across different global regions, along with the current, mid, and long-term sales forecasts. We also discuss the challenges facing medium to heavy commercial fleets and the evolution of battery chemistries and the new battery tech that is now starting to reach the commercial market. Now, of course, this is just a snapshot into what is an extensive report, but we pulled out a few nuggets for you and hopefully you enjoy. And if you do like it and you want to hear more podcasts from us, make sure to subscribe to receive updates on future episodes. And also, if you want to share it with others, the best way to do that is to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now, my conversation with Colin about the 2023 Electric Vehicle Outlook from BNAF. Hi, Colin. Thank you for joining us again today. Hi, Dana. Great to be on the program again. So we're here to talk about this year's edition, so the 2023 Electric Vehicle Outlook. So we do one of these every year, which is a Herculean effort. And I know there are there are numerous members, both in your team and in other parts of BNF, that all contribute to making this report happen. And so for those who maybe are not familiar with the report or maybe didn't listen to our show last year where we went over some of the findings, which a few things have changed between then and now, Can you just give a very quick overview of what this is and perhaps isn't? Yeah, definitely. So the electric vehicle outlook is our outlook at BNEF for all of road transport. So despite the name, it's not only about electric vehicles. It's about everything that's going on with the vehicles on the road in the world. And it also bears mentioning that that isn't just passenger cars. So we immediately think of cars, but... Of course, there's vans and trucks that are moving around all the goods around the world. In some markets, two and three wheelers are a big part of the mobility mix. There's municipal buses as well. And what you find as you dig into these is that not only is each country different, but each segment is on its own sort of different trajectory. So when we when we do this exercise, what we're trying to figure out is what's happening. And again, not just with electric vehicles, with combustion vehicles and with other aspects of the road transport mix around the world and across all these different segments. So we sort of start with what does the world look like today? And that is saying literally how much do people move around in each country? 
and how much do goods move around? So in people, you're talking about something like a passenger kilometer or in freight, you're talking a freight ton kilometer. And then we look at how those might change over time. So that's where the things around, okay, the adoption of electric vehicles comes in. That's where things like shared mobility, that's where things like autonomous driving, changes in consumer behavior, demographic changes, urbanization changes, and all of these things come together to form our outlook for what happens for road transport. And then once we've got that outlook together about where we think each segment and country is going, we then map that onto on all these all these other areas. And those are things like electricity demand, battery metals and materials, CO2 emissions, oil demand, infrastructure needs, and of course, vehicle sales as well. So that was for the people who are not necessarily avid followers of this one year to the next. But for those who are, there were some new sections this year. And within that, you know, we added a section on Nordics and California. Can you explain why those sections were added? And then let's come to some of the other things that maybe are new or updates for your loyal followers who have been waiting for this year's installment of the Electric Vehicle Outlook. Yeah, so the Nordics in California, every year we get asked for by quite a few of our clients to add different countries. And each time you add a country, it's quite a bit of work because you have to go and dig up all of the data about the mobility mix in that country and all the other factors that I mentioned about what might change that in the future. So we try and limit it to adding kind of one or two each year. And what we wanted to do this year is to show what does the transition look like in some leading areas? So California is, of course, leading the U.S., but is also a leader globally. The Nordics is probably the furthest along this transition of any group of countries or states. I'm sitting in, in Oslo in Norway right now. Over 80% of vehicle sales are fully electric. Markets like Sweden, Finland, others are not too far behind. So what we wanted to do was play out some of the emissions and energy market impacts and fleet turnover impacts in countries and regions where electric vehicle adoption is going quite quickly. So that was the logic behind adding those. Last year, we added a lot of detail on Southeast Asia because we were seeing really interesting things happening there. Next year, we'll probably add another big emerging economy. So somewhere potentially like Brazil or Mexico, where again, the mix of mobility is different and the timelines are different for all of the things that we're seeing happen around the world. So a bit of a case study and something that you could in theory extrapolate out. Yeah, exactly. We, what we want to have is indicative countries or regions that people can understand. So we now cover 14 major auto markets around the world. So there are a lot of different sections in our research on the vehicle outlook. Which section matters the most? Obviously, they all matter and it's hard to pick your favorite child. But in this, you know, what is weighted most heavily when you think about things like batteries, battery chemistry or supply chains or charging networks or consumer trends? Which one would you say is probably the most influential part of actually determining what these long term forecasts really look like? Yeah, I mean, the starting point for BNF has been for a long time that batteries are, are really what's enabling this change. And you can take the view that, well, governments could just force the issue and push every all the markets over into electric with enough taxation or subsidies. But that gets politically difficult in a lot of countries if the underlying technology isn't continuing to get cheaper and better. Fortunately, the technology is continuing to get better. It actually got more expensive last year due to a spike in raw material prices. So we go into that a lot and look at what's happening there. But I would say the starting point is still really in terms of what's going to change when we talk about electric vehicles anyway, is certainly the battery side. So what, one of the things we did this year, for example, is say, look, battery prices went up slightly last year. What do we think happens? And what are what's some scenario analysis for when you get to, in the passenger vehicle segment, price parity with combustion vehicles based on different battery experience curves or, or learning rates, given that we saw them go up for the first time last year. So again, looking at the underlying technology, battery chemistry mix and price outlook, it still forms the basis for us being able to say with some confidence that things are going to continue to accelerate 
very quickly on EV adoption. Um, and so, I, again, you said, it, yeah, don't, I don't want to pick a favorite child, but I would say that's probably the, the most foundational part of the work that we're doing. Now, we also do this net zero scenario. So the base scenario in the report is this economic transition scenario, which says, look, this is led by techno-economic forces. And that's the primary thing that drives changes in the vehicle markets around the world. And we assume that no new policies are in place. And again, that's where that the battery cost stuff really becomes critical. But we also run a net zero scenario, which is more of a backcasting exercise that says, if we want to get to a net zero capable fleet by 2050, what has to happen? That's less reliant on the battery price part because you're sort of saying, well, if you believe we can get on track, here's where it would have to go. And here's the policy recommendations to keep it on track. But obviously, that's a bit of a different exercise than sort of what's the trajectory we're on today. But the punchline ultimately being that it is possible. A net zero future is possible with enough will. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, one of the things we, we sort of show is that some countries are actually getting kind of close and some segments are getting kind of close to the net zero scenario. So when we break out two wheelers, three wheelers, buses, those segments are actually pretty close. Three wheelers is pretty much on track. Two wheelers and buses are, are pretty close. And then you get into light duty vans and commercial vehicles and passenger vehicles. And there, the, there's a lot of variation by country. But again, you're starting to get some countries that are, are looking like they're going to be able to phase out combustion vehicle sales, at least very close to by the early to mid 2030s. And that's roughly what you need to stay on track for a carbon neutral capable fleet by 2050. Now, it's worth noting that 2050 carbon neutral capable fleet, you also have to have a lot of stuff going on in the power system to decarbonize the power system to enable that fleet to actually operate in a zero emissions way. And, and so that's a separate part of BNF's work, the new energy outlook. But what we're doing here is looking at can the fleet of vehicles on the road operate without producing CO2 emissions? Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So there's a lot of money at stake. This is definitely a big industry. And when we look at consumer demand, electric vehicle sales are increasing. Where are they, I guess, now in terms of sales? And where do we expect them to be in the future? You know, 2030 all the way out to 2050, both in terms of percentage of total vehicles sold, but also in terms of how much money is there actually flooding into this specific part of the market? Yeah, let's start with the near-term picture. So last year, there was about 10.5 million plug-in vehicles sold. So that's battery electrics and plug-in hybrids. This year, we think there's going to be about 14 million sold, a little higher than that. Actually, we're trending a little bit above that. And by 2026, we're forecasting about 27 million sales. And just to translate that into percentage terms, that's about 30%. So just under a third of the global vehicle market, we're saying as plug-in vehicles by 2026. And that's really not very far away. And that's, that's coming at us quite quickly. What's important, again, there is that there's quite a lot of regional variation. So countries like China are probably going to be above 50% by then. Regions like Europe, above 40%. And then there's kind of everybody else. And there's quite a big spread between some of the other markets. So the near-term picture is one of continued pretty rapid acceleration, but then a lot of variety between the different countries. And we think the fleet of passenger vehicles we're talking about here crosses 100 million EVs by 2026. Now, One of the things that kind of falls out of that is that combustion vehicle sales have already peaked. So they actually peaked in 2017. They declined in 2018 and 2019, then really dropped in 2020 because of COVID, recovered a bit in 2021 and recovering again in 2022. But all of that recovery is essentially on the electric side. And we don't really see them ever getting back to those 2017 highs. You just look at what's going on in China, where the most recent month sales are, you're already at a third of sales. Uh, In Europe, you're running around 20%. It's just really hard to offset that anywhere else in the world to get up to the levels of combustion vehicle sales we saw in 2017. So that's kind of a near-term implication is that they're already, combustion vehicle sales are already 20% off their peak of 2017, and they're probably going to be more like 40% off their peak by the time you get to 2026. And they're now in terminal decline. When we look a bit further out, a couple of things happen. One, this gap between the countries, it sticks around for a while, but then it starts to even out a little bit. It starts to get smaller as things take off in the countries that have been slower to start with. So a good example of that is somewhere like Australia. It's been quite slow so far in EV adoption, but it's now picking up quite quickly. And we've seen this in a few cases, the countries that go slower at the beginning often then pick up faster. And some of that is just built up demand. There's also an economic effect going on when we look at emerging economies. So the The way we model this is around the price competitiveness of EVs in different segments and in different countries. And one of the things you find is that emerging economies are quite price sensitive, right? There's not a lot of spare money people have to spend on vehicles. I mean, there is at the premium end, but in the bulk of the vehicle market and emerging economy, there's not a huge amount of extra money available. That price sensitivity works against EV adoption before the point of price parity, but then it accelerates it afterwards. Once EVs become the cheaper option, then things start to go quite quickly, whereas 
before they were the cheapest option, things go quite slowly. So that's why you get these different curves where it's kind of slow and then really accelerating in the countries that are going slowly now and in the emerging economies. And it's actually fast and then starting to tail off in some of the wealthier countries that are in China that are going quicker right now. And the reason for that tail off is actually just you start to saturate the market around the 2035 period. We have markets like Europe and China really starting to slow down because you start to get to sort of 70, 80, even 90% of sales being electric. And that just means that we think the last sort of 10% is going to be a bit hard to address. And so the S curve slows down there. On a global basis, again, talking about the passenger vehicle segment, EVs get to about 75% of sales in 2040 globally, and that's pure electrics at that point. We see plug-in hybrids kind of disappearing by then. There are scenarios where that goes faster. Of course, the net zero scenario is much faster. It has to be 100% or almost 100% by 2035 of new vehicle sales to stay on track for the net zero scenario. But that's our, our economic transition scenario, which says no new policies. It's about 75% by 2040. So we've talked a bit about where adoption is going really well and what's working well, but let's talk a little bit about the medium and heavy commercial vehicle space, which is lagging behind some of the other success stories like three wheelers. So what is it that's keeping medium and heavy commercial vehicles from really having the same adoption as you're seeing in other areas? Yeah, so the commercial vehicle segment is significantly behind the other vehicle segments. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them so far has really just been around available models. Right now, there just aren't many that you can go out and buy. And there's there's sort of technological reasons for that. Batteries needed to get better. We're starting to see that log jam ease a little bit. And that's we're starting to see a lot more models, particularly launching in the big markets. So China, North America, Europe. And actually, so far, China is leading this. But it's interesting to note that trucking might be one of the areas where the US is really going to jump forward on. It's been a bit behind those other two regions on passenger cars. But I actually think there's some really interesting stuff happening on heavy and medium trucks in the US and a lot of very interested uh, large corporate buyers who are going to push that forward and some interesting starting points, places like ports using these big vehicles for dry edge. And you're seeing some really fascinating activity happening there in California. But so there's that model availability question, which is sort of being eased now. You're seeing more things launch. Then there's the price part of it. These vehicles are still significantly more expensive, but we see that coming down the same way we see it coming down on the passenger vehicle side. In general, we've seen the prices of batteries going into trucks lag a couple of years what you see in passenger cars. And that's just because passenger cars are a bigger segment. The buyers have more power and there's just lower prices negotiated there. But again, that's starting to close a little bit too. The last thing that is really still there is charging heavy trucks at the highway is tough. It's a lot of power. It's a huge demand on the grid in many cases in places where there isn't a very thick grid connection, if you will. And that's a challenge. Now, it's not a challenge for everybody. There is a fair amount of depot charging that can go on and predictable routes and relatively slow charging overnight because most of those vehicles stop overnight. But that really heavy duty long haul trucking, there is a big charging infrastructure need there. Now, the good thing is we're also seeing a lot of money starting to flow towards that and a lot more truck focused charging stations start to be built, but it's kind of early days. And so the EV share of the medium and heavy commercial vehicle fleet last year was only 0.1%. So we're, we're at the very, very beginning of that. So for passenger vehicles, it's about 2% of the fleet last year. 
For some of the other ones, it's much higher. Commercial and heavy vehicles, about 0.1% of the fleet. But we saw, again, just kind of when you're looking at these segments where it's early, you're trying to scan the horizon a bit and see what's happening. And you start to see some interesting success stories. So China is doing a lot on this. You're in towards the end of the last year, there were a few months where medium and heavy zero emissions vehicles, so that includes some fuel cell vehicles, hit around 5% of medium and heavy truck sales in China. On the light commercial vehicle front, South Korea, about 25% of light commercial vehicle sales in South Korea are already electric. So you're starting to see more of, of that stuff happen, but it is early days. And I think that charging infrastructure part is both a real opportunity and, and a real challenge. And can we describe what a day in life really looks like for someone who is driving one of those commercial vehicles? Because my understanding is that they're driving long distances and have really long hours. And to your point regarding charging overnight, that makes sense when you're on the road. But can you even make it to overnight? Do you have the range and the power? And if not, how long is your lunch break essentially that you will need to take in order to recharge in order to be able to make that route? And I guess if I really had to boil it down, what's the range and what's the recharge? charge time for a, let's say, a heavy-duty semi-style vehicle or a lorry, as they would call them here in the UK? Yeah, this is another one that varies a fair bit because there's actually different regulations in different countries on how long drivers have to stop for. So we did some work looking at route patterns within Europe. And actually what you discover is that there's quite a lot of most of the freight moved is actually moved on routes less than four or 500 kilometers in, in Europe. But you do still have a fair bit of really long haul stuff. And, and in that case, then you are going to be dependent on the charging infrastructure on route. And so what we did find is that if you say, look at Europe, the average time or the amount of time that a driver is required to stop for every four hours of driving is sufficient to recharge, to add significant enough range to continue on the trip. So I actually don't think the downtime is going to be the limiter here. You're starting to see the truck ranges creep up. A lot of them are still in regional and urban duty cycles right now. So they do maybe two, 300, 400 kilometers even. We're probably going to see the next ones that reach 500 kilometers in, in large scale production in the next little while. Tesla Semi, of course, claiming they're going to be able to do much more than that, but we haven't actually seen that in fully loaded delivering that capability, which is important to note. But I don't think it's going to be the dwell time. I think there is more activity around megawatt scale charging. So being able to deliver a full megawatt of power to the truck. Once you do that, you can cut the charging time down into what I think will fit into a normal rest period that a driver needs to take anyway, based on the calculations we've done. The bigger challenge is going to be getting all that power down to where you need it. And so there you might see a quite interesting set of solutions come in. You're seeing in China, they're experimenting with some battery swapping. You're probably going to see a lot of battery storage at these sites so that you're charging those batteries at a slower rate and then charging battery to battery to cut some of the grid strain that you're seeing there. And then you're probably also going to see a bit of a land grab for where you have places where there is sufficient charging or power capacity coming down to the site that are going to be suitable as larger scale truck stops. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. 
Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions. July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, let's switch over to innovation a little bit. And on the technology side, there have been some experiments of sorts going on when it comes to battery technology and battery chemistries. Can you share a little bit around what's happening when it comes to battery chemistries at the moment? Maybe what are the more exciting innovations? Yeah, this year we highlighted three. So each each year we try and do these thematic highlights where we look at things that are, we think, kind of interesting questions. And one of the ones that are beyond the sort of big picture modeling stuff and country level modeling. And one of the ones we came up with this year was noting how there are all these battery innovations that have been considered pre-commercial for quite a while, but are now entering the commercialization phase. And so what we did is we identified three of them, and there are more, but I, I think three of the most interesting ones are one, sodium ion batteries, uh, next generation anodes, and solid state batteries. And our battery team is is all over this, and and they've been publishing a lot on tracking these developments over the years and how they've gotten to this point. But I think the important thing to note is that one innovation in the battery industry is not slowing down at all. If anything, it's speeding up as the industry grows, which is what we've expected, but it's still sometimes hard to predict exactly what shape that takes. On sodium ion batteries, this is a technology that has in theory been around for quite a while, but there was challenges. You've got this balancing act anytime with a new battery around things like cycle life and and capacity and density and, and all these sorts of things. And some of those, it looks like some of the leading battery manufacturers have significantly improved on the technology enough to be confident that they can put it into passenger cars. So you've seen the very first set of announcements from some smaller players and some big ones on building significant amounts of sodium ion battery capacity and commercializing that into vehicles late this year or more likely in the next few years. But that's a big, that's a potential game changer. Now, the energy density isn't as good as traditional lithium ion batteries, but they're very stable and the materials for them are very cheap. And we've done some work looking at how low those prices could go. And we think there's a route to getting $50 a kilowatt hour sodium ion batteries, which would be a game changer for very affordable electric vehicles. Now, that won't happen overnight. What we've seen is that things take time to scale up in the battery 
battery industry. But that is a chemistry and a, a technological advancement that we think can play a significant role in alleviating some of the pinch points we've seen on the battery supply chain for some of the materials. So things like lithium or cobalt or nickel that spiked last year and have since come down quite significantly. So it's not to say they all remain high, but there will be future spikes of all of these things. And having a diversified portfolio of battery options that you can go to if that happens for a prolonged period of time is very, very good for the industry. So we think sodium ion is going to start at the the lower end of the vehicle market, similar to the way lithium iron phosphate batteries did a few years ago. But we think it has potential to change the dynamics significantly sort of in 2030 and beyond in terms of total amount of lithium demand needed for vehicles. So really at a point when we talked so much about range anxiety and wanting to increase range for drivers over and over again and how that instinctively seems like the way of the future, the way of the future also increasingly looks like you're going to have different types of vehicles for different economic price ranges and also use cases and that perhaps maybe a much lower range, but also much lower cost for a specific use case, perhaps urban pinging around seems like it's more of a potential than it was in the past. Yeah, definitely. And this is an important thing is that you're going to see more separation in the overall vehicle market in terms of all of it, really, the battery chemistry they use, the range that people require as you get to more and more scale and get into more and more segments. As I said earlier, some segments are more price sensitive than others. So you really need to have affordable options there. And I think you are going to see more diversification of the technology going into different vehicles. And even now you're starting to see that. So you're starting to see, say, a Volkswagen or a Ford saying, Actually, our, our entry-level vehicles and even Tesla, Tesla pushed pioneering this approach among Western automakers, our entry-level vehicles are going to use a lithium iron phosphate battery. Our higher-end ones are going to use an NMC or an NCA battery with higher density and at a higher associated cost as well. I think it won't end there. I think you will have some who say, no, we're just focusing on urban vehicles and those are going to be using a sodium ion battery and it's going to be ultra cheap and ultra affordable, but still very safe. And I think that's, that is a significant difference from where we were a few years ago and is a big change. Now, we can't seem to make it through an episode here these days without talking about supply chains. So let's let's go there because supply chains globally are shifting, certainly within the battery space. But how about within the auto manufacturing space? Now, I know for electric vehicles, a big part of the kit is the battery. So we can touch upon that. But when it comes to making that complete vehicle that rolls off the line, whether it's for commercial or direct individual use to get around town, are those supply chains also dramatically changing? Yeah, definitely. One of the consistent things in the auto industry is that it's it's always changing and evolving. And you can see that over the decades. I think automotive is a fascinating lens to view the world through generally. You have these waves of different companies and countries coming in. So the Japanese automakers in the 70s and 80s, and then the Koreans in the 90s and 2000s, and now the Chinese coming uh, in the 2020s here. That will continue to happen. Automotive supply chains are long, so they reach a long way up. There's even in an EV where there's less parts, there's still a lot of parts, there's a lot of material, a lot of physical material that goes into making a car. And so they are also subject to trade challenges, right? Generally, they've been op- able to operate without too many uh, restrictions, and, and a lot of countries have benefited from relatively free trade on automotive. But that period may be ending a little bit. We start to see more and more tensions around this topic 
other policies that are aimed at really explicitly supporting domestic manufacturing. So the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, China's of course been supporting domestic manufacturing of vehicles and batteries for quite a long time. Europe now responding to the Inflation Reduction Act. So this play-by-play of where are the jobs going to be and where are the vehicles going to be made and where the batteries going to be, it's going to continue. We're not at anything resembling a steady state on that yet. One thing I will say though, is that in the long term, you do want to generally make vehicles near the market where they're being consumed or used, I should say. And similar for batteries. Now, right now, you're seeing some interesting dynamics where a lot of companies are making EVs in China and shipping them to Europe. I think that holds at some reasonable volume and for a little while. But I think in the long term, it is more desirable to have the vehicles made relatively near where they're being consumed. Now, there's always going to be exceptions to that. But if you look at the orientation of vehicle markets over the last 20 years, that is still the case. So yes, there are lots of Japanese vehicles sold in the US, but most of them are made in US plants. Yes, there are some vehicles shipped from Germany to China or the US, but there's also a lot of those made domestically in those countries as well. So it's going to continue to be a dance. There is going to be a fair bit of localization. I think it is going to continue to be a bit of a political hot potato around how you incentivize domestic jobs and domestic manufacturing. I think this year it caught us by surprise a bit, the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think it caught a lot of people by surprise, even within the industry, just how big a push that was going to be to onshore the US vehicle and battery manufacturing supply chain. And that is happening. It's happening really quickly. There are tens of billions of dollars announced since IRO was announced in North American battery and component manufacturing. And so I sometimes hear this view that like, oh, this is done. China won the this race. I think we're still in the early going of this. As I said, only at the end of last year, only 2% of all the vehicles on the road were electric. There's a lot of room still for countries to carve out new industrial policy clusters and build new base of jobs and innovation. So I think we're going to continue to see a fair bit of maneuvering there. I hope it doesn't end up too fragmented because I think that will slow down the transition at a time when we want to be speeding it up. But I think that's a very real possibility. So now it's going to be impossible to go through everything in this report. And I feel like we pulled out some interesting themes. And certainly there is also the meat of these forecasts. But I want to pivot now to something that I've started doing at the end of most of the shows now, which is trying to find out what our lead analysts are looking at and what they're watching and what they're ignoring, maybe in the category broadly of weird and wonderful tech. So not covered in this report, but... In Colin's list of things to watch and ignore, I'm wondering about hydrogen vehicles. Yeah, and that's a good question. I get asked this question a lot. I'm, I'm still not really clear always why I get asked it a lot because th- the picture hasn't actually changed very much. So this year, we actually took hydrogen vehicles out of the passenger vehicle forecast. And I'll give you a bit of background on why. Hydrogen vehicle sales, vehicles, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, I should say, have been around for quite a long time. The first discussions of them go back decades. And really, they have not delivered on any of the promise that has been discussed over the years. And last year, sales of them fell from 2021. So they were down. And not only were they down, we saw a few automakers sort of reduce their commitment. And we also saw more and more of the sales concentrated in the passenger vehicle segment in South Korea. So it's about 70% of passenger fuel cell vehicles were in South Korea, about 15,000 sold last year. It's not very many. Uh, it's a very, very small market. It's concentrated in a few models, a few automakers, and a very small number of geographies. The few refueling infrastructure part is still a major, major challenge. We've seen supply issues at the hydrogen fueling stations that are there, a lot of them offline at any given time, and some of them just plain removed. For example, in the UK, Shell pulled a few out because they weren't being used enough. So it's expensive, and it's just not really what consumers seem to want. In the places even that built a fair amount of refueling infrastructure like California, sales are 
way, way down. Sales have plummeted in Japan, which has been the biggest backer of the technology. So at some point as forecasters, we just start to get really uncomfortable saying, I don't feel comfortable making a 20-year forecast for something that is so concentrated and falling last year. So we just sort of said, look, we're taking it out. We'll revisit it when fuel cell vehicles reach 0.1% of global vehicle sales. So that's not very much. That's not a high bar. 0.1% is pretty low. That would be around 80,000 vehicles a year. Maybe they get there. We'll happily revisit it when they do, but they're not there now. And it's very uncomfortable for people who rely on data to try and make a long-term forecast. Trucking, they still play a role in our net zero scenario, but they're sort of backfilling where batteries don't work rather than the main solution. So I think another way to think about hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, if you're thinking about energy and emissions from the passenger vehicle segment, if you were to double the size of the passenger fuel cell vehicle fleet, so you take all the number that have been on the road sold over the last 20 years and you double it every three years. So all the way out to 2040, every three years, you double the size of the fleet. That, that's a pretty aggressive rate of growth, considering how long it's taken to get to where we are. If you do that, then they will be about 0.2% of the vehicle fleet in 2040. So have no meaningful impact on emissions or energy consumption in, in passenger transport. So again, you sort of look at that. If that's the upper bound scenario, that's the optimistic scenario for growth and it has zero impact on global CO2 emissions in 2040, then you have to sort of say, well, why are we spending so much time talking about this? So I, I think there's still a potential role to play as backfill in the trucking segment, in heavy duty long haul, in parts that are hard to electrify. I think it's significantly smaller than batteries and smaller than a lot of the proponents suggest. But I really don't see, at least in the data right now, much of an interest from consumers in the passenger vehicle segment. So maybe more in the weird and wonderful category. Are you closely watching or ignoring solar cars? Ignoring. That's firmly in the ignoring camp. <laughs> so last one. You can't look at the news these days without looking at something that has to do with AI. And I want to know, are you closely watching or are you sort of ignoring self-driving vehicles? Because the self-driving space has come in and out of fashion a few times. Yeah, we're not ignoring it. And I would say if you read media coverage only, you would think that self-driving cars are completely failing. And our view has always been that it will take time once we're talking about big impacts. Societal impacts are more of a 2030s and 2040s story. But there is real progress being made. There are commercial self-driving car services you can take now in, in San Francisco, in, in Beijing, and they're expanding. Yes, they're geofenced, and yes, they're, there's all sorts of caveats to it, but you should probably be more optimistic on the technology now than in the past because it exists now uh, and it didn't when the sort of hype cycle was at its peak. You couldn't commercially go and get in a self-driving car. You can do that now. And they're really racking up the kilometers and the China market is moving really quickly. So I think all this stuff around self-driving cars gets caught up in these all or nothing. It's going to go take over 100% immediately or it's all smoke and mirrors and nothing's going to happen. I think you're going to see this stuff slowly and steadily expand, more geofenced areas. But it is real. And so one of the things we did this year is run two scenarios to say, look, what does happen if this stuff really takes off? And it does potentially dramatically cut down the size of the global vehicle fleet. And it also can push you towards electrification sooner. And that's because more of the autonomous vehicles that are being used for testing right now are electric. And there's a lot of reasons to think because of economics and regulation that future ones are going to be electric as well. That means that the kilometers can go electric faster than the fleet can. If we take how much people move around 
around and assign it to different drivetrains. So it can both lower the size of the vehicle fleet and push it towards electric faster. Of course, there's still the nightmare scenario where there's a big rebound in the amount of vehicle use because of self-driving cars. We didn't really dive into that in this time. But in general, I think it's not something you should ignore. I think it's something you should recognize that we don't know and do sensitivity on scenario analysis accordingly. So I I think it's definitely still something to watch. And I actually think you're going to hear quite a bit more about it in 2024 and 2025 as some of these services start to scale up further. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.